you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled The View from Afar, Ukraine and the Changing Landscape of OSINT. The talk features Aram Shabanian, the open source information gathering manager at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. During the talk, Aram provides an overview of how conducting open source research on the war in Ukraine has changed since 2014 with the development of new tools and techniques. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on August 10th, 2022. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to our stage talk today. It is August 10th, 2022. My name is Giancarlo Fiorella. I'm a researcher and a trainer here at Bellingcat. I'm also running the Discord server, which you all are in. So thank you very much for being in the server and hanging out here. Um, I'm going to introduce our guest in about two minutes. I just want to give um, a bit of a, uh, I just want to go over some housekeeping stuff, the usual stuff that you would have heard from me if you've ever been to a stage talk before. Um, we do these about once a month, but you may notice that this is the second one that we've done in a month. And that's because uh, at Bellingcat, I think we're getting more and more excited about stage talks. And so um, I'm seeing interest from not just from Bellingcat uh, staff, from my colleagues, but also from uh, Bellingcat friends like Aram, who's our guest today, about participating in these talks. So ideally, I think in the near future, we're going to be doing them more often, maybe twice a month, maybe even more, uh, more than twice a month. So thank you for coming to this one. Um, we will do another one probably in about a week or two. I'm still working out the details of that one with our, with some of my colleagues. Um, so if this is your first stage talk, thank you for coming. Look forward to more in the future. Um, I will also be recording this. I'm recording all of the stage talks and I'm going to put them on SoundCloud. It'll usually take me a couple of days to get the recording up. Um, so if you stick around the server. Let's see, today's Wednesday. Yeah, maybe by the end of the week or maybe early next week, I'll have the link to it and I'll share it here in the server so you can share the stage talk with friends or anybody who wasn't able to make it today. So today we have uh, a special guest and this is, um, um, sorry, I'm reading a message from our special guest who says, I can't hear anything, uh, but I think now he can hear. That's great. Um, uh, this is, the, I think, the first stage talk that we've had with somebody who's not in Bellingcat, which is wonderful, because this is great. The Bellingcat server, obviously, is a community hub for Bellingcat, but as you know, Bellingcat is part of a big ecosystem of open source researchers. Some of them are formally affiliated. Some of them are independent. And so this is what we love to see. We love to see members of the community from, from other organizations also engaging with, with the server here. So we're very lucky to have Aram Shabanian joining us. He is uh, at New Lines. Um, I'm looking for your official title here. Uh, Aram, you sent it to me, Open Source Information Gathering Manager. Um, this is uh, a, a role that he's fulfilling at New Lines. And um, I'll say before I pass it on to, to Aram that I've known him digitally for a number of years. He's one of the first maybe OSINT people that I ever met online. And uh, I've learned so much from him. 
over the years. Uh, basically, you know, if I can say that uh, that I one of my areas of of uh, interest and expertise is flight tracking, it really is because of Ram was very generous with his time and very patient with me early on, maybe without even realizing it and teaching me about flight tracking. So I'm very happy to have him here today. We're very lucky to have a Ram uh, uh, talking to us about uh, the changing landscape in uh, the open source monitoring of the war in Ukraine. So thank you very much, Aram, for joining us. I'm going to cut you off uh, in about 35 minutes so that we have time for Q&A. Oh, and that's the last thing I wanted to say before I hand it over to Aram. If you have a question throughout the talk, please feel free to DM it to me. So send me a DM with your text question. Uh, the last 20 minutes of the talk will devote to Q&A. So I'll go through your questions uh, for Aram. And then also, if you want to unmute yourself at the end of the talk, um, you can ask your question also via voice. So whatever you feel comfortable with. So having said that, I'm going to pass it over to Aram. Aram, uh, thank you for joining us and uh, thank you for your time. Hey, uh, hopefully you guys can all hear me. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm really glad to be here. Um, glad to be able to help everybody out. A little background about myself and the reason I've chosen to be here today and, and really wanted to be here today. Um, I don't come from a traditional background in terms of analysts. I uh, basically saw Elliot Higgins and others doing cool stuff on a terrible comedy website many years ago and thought to myself, if they can do it, I can probably do it. Uh, I can learn these skills if they've learned them themselves. And so I started trying to geolocate things and found out that I'm terrible at it. But there were other things that I found out I was decent at. Um, and so I've I've really honed in on those skills and uh, how I got to where I am now. I uh, did my undergraduate at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. I uh, got a, a degree in history. Um, and then I went on to the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and got a master's degree in nonproliferation and terrorism studies over the last uh, three years here. Um, so I graduated uh, in December and uh, started working at New Lines. And I was initially hired on to do uh, tracking of non-state actors in Iraq and Syria. Um, but I was pretty early on asked if I could give an opinion on what I thought might happen with the war in Ukraine. And uh, they asked me, you know, what's the worst case scenario that you see playing out in Ukraine? And so this is like December 2021. Um, and so we're seeing these OSCE reports indicating that there's like increased gunfire and occasional shelling near the front lines. The OSCE, of course, being the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. They're like a, an NGO or a, a intergovernment organization, basically, that uh, works to try to maintain uh, peace in Europe. Um, they have not done great in the last few months, but, you know, you win some, you lose some. Um, and so with the satellite imagery that we were able to monitor. We were able to see there were buildups along the border with Ukraine, and I'll get into this more later. Um, and that combined with videos that we saw of constant buildups near Ukraine told me at the very least that there were a lot of tanks and artillery near the border. And so when somebody tells me, you know, hey, what's the worst case scenario? Um, I I've seen enough disaster movies like, you know, oh, worst case scenario is, you know, Russia takes over the whole country. And people were kind of stunned. You know, and they were like, Whoa, what do you mean? Is that possible? And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, look what we're seeing. Look, look what we're seeing in front of us. There's got to be something big coming because you don't move that many men and that many tanks, and that much artillery this quickly 
without doing something with it eventually. Uh, it costs a lot of money to move that many pieces of equipment. And so uh, it was just, it was fascinating because a lot of people discounted or discredited the idea of a war starting with between Russia and Ukraine just because of the historical reasons and political reasons and whatnot. But if you looked at the open source data, even a layman could tell you that there was a war coming. And I mean, I would show the data, I would show the information to my friends who have no background in international relations. And they would tell me like, oh yeah, it looks like Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Like without me prompting them, they'd be like, hey, is Russia about to invade Ukraine? Because it sounds like it. Um, and it was only people who, you know, had the the background in, in um, analysis, basically, and being an analyst that didn't see it coming. And I think that's a weird disconnect. Uh, in any case, I'll get into the OSINT tools now. Um, I just wanted to give a little background there to show why this matters, right? Because if you just go the traditional route with analysis and and, and uh, foreign policy monitoring, things like that, uh, you're going to miss some stuff. You really have to combine open source intelligence with a traditional background in research. Um, and I think that a lot of the community that you see in the Bellingcat Discord um, has shown not only an interest in open source intelligence, but has started doing some of the legwork if they haven't already been doing it in terms of traditional research. And I think that's really cool. And I think that everybody listening to this is pretty cool. So thank you all for being here. Um, so I've been following the war in Ukraine uh, since the Euromaidan broke out in 2013. And I remember when Euromaidan broke out uh, in November 2013, there were occasional live stream cameras from the protests. But that was only when the protests got really nuts and like Vice News abruptly would send a, a crew there to follow the protesters around. At which point you had it kind of sensationalized because Ruptly is, you know, of course, a branch of RT and uh, therefore funded by the Russian government. Um, and then Vice News is is uh, Vice News. So they were both interested in sensationalizing what they were looking at. Regardless, it gave a bit of a view into what was happening on the streets of, of Kiev at the time um, that supplemented the existing YouTube videos that were being released. Um, and so for me, that was kind of a fascinating new look. You know, I was an undergraduate student at the time, and I thought it was really cool that you could just turn on your computer and turn on a live stream, and you'd be right there in the streets of Kiev with the people, getting tear gassed with them, getting flashbanged with them, and then you'd see protesters falling, you know, with with live wounds, live gunshot wounds. Um, and it was it was horrifying. It was fascinating. It was everything that you can imagine. And it got me really interested in learning about what was happening in Ukraine. And so I watched with horror as the protests turned violent and then turned into a war um, and did what I could to follow what was happening. I remember when MH17 was shot down, there was a lot of Bellingcat work done into investigating what had happened with MH17. And that really opened my eyes into what was possible uh, with open source intelligence um, and the fact that everything that Bellingcat did with those with that reporting was a combination of open source intelligence and traditional research combining, uh, for instance, accident reports and things like that uh, that had come out about the shootdown. Uh, it really gave a, a full picture of what was happening. And so as the war continued into 2015, I started picking up on more and more skills that I could use to follow the conflict. but. Uh, things kind of petered out in uh, September 2015. Uh, we saw a 
drastic reduction in fighting in Ukraine, and then a huge spike in Russian involvement in Syria. And so myself and much of the open source community moved to looking at Syria. Um, and then by the time this war kicked off again in uh, January or February of this year, we all had these advanced skills that we developed that we were able to use to, to watch the war. And so among those were things like uh, satellite imagery. Early in the war, satellite imagery was really hit or miss because it was winter and it was cloudy. Um, and so for that reason alone, it was quite difficult to use a true color image satellite to look at what's down on the ground below. Um, so there are a couple satellite uh, providers available. There's Sentinel Hub and there's NASA's EOS DIS server. Um, they're both pretty effective, uh, but low resolution. And so you're not going to be able to pick out individual tanks or anything with these with these images. But what you could see uh, with the true color images was not not great. It was cloud cover. Sentinel One is a satellite that fires a radar image at the Earth and reflects back toward the satellite, and it makes an image of what it sees. And so we were able to use Sentinel One to look at places where there had previously been Russian military encampments but where the encampments had cleared out in recent years. Um, so places like old airfields um, and staging grounds and things like that. And the radar satellites were able to pick up massive radar reflections of huge numbers of tanks and armored vehicles gathering in these places where they hadn't been in September of 2021. And so that was pretty telling to us, that all these encampments were suddenly coming to life um, around the borders with Ukraine. When we were able to get true color imagery out, we were able to see things like tents buried in the snow. And steadily, as we got closer to February, more and more of those tents no longer had snow on them because they were being warmed because there were people using them. So we knew more and more troops were moving to the front line just based on the the snow on tent on the tent roofs. Uh, and then, of course, we were able to see things like bridges across the Pripyat River uh, in Belarus. Um, that were built, pontoon bridges that were built and visible on satellite imagery in the days leading up to the war. And so satellites have been pretty much a go-to the whole time. Um, even when the weather wasn't great, we were able to use them, just not as effectively as we've been able to use them more recently. More recently, these satellites have provided us a view of uh, the battlefield in granular detail. Um, many of us probably remember from several weeks ago or months ago, the attempted Russian crossing of one of the rivers in, in the east, um, and then just the satellite image of just stacked up shells of tanks in the river, you know, uh, individual tanks visible, and you can ID what kind of tank they are. That's how high the resolution of these images is. So there's everything from that to these more large image NASA and European Space Agency satellites that can show you trends on the battlefield, but also can show you where there's fires breaking out on the battlefield. And so that's been a novel use of open source uh, technology, has been using satellites that were initially, de initially developed to detect wildfires to see where the battles are raging every day because they show up as little wildfires, especially if the explosions are large enough. And so if you see enough of these fire points gathered in an area over a certain period of time, you can pay for a commercial satellite to take an image of it and see if there's actually shelling damage to the area, and there usually is. Um, I've seen some folks using radar satellites to take images of cities, uh, and they'll take an image of the city from, say, September of last year. So they did like Mariupol, and then they took an image of the city from a month ago, and they took the, they had the uh, satellite highlight 
wherever the radar altitude was different in the city. So wherever a building had changed height uh, to show you where there was damage in the city with a radar satellite. So you could overlay that over an actual satellite image of the city and see which blocks had been destroyed. Um, beyond that, uh, other space-based technology has been, um, well, and, and terrestrial technology really, but ADSB aircraft tracking has been key um, throughout this conflict. And so we used it before the conflict. There's websites like Flight Radar 24 and ADSB Exchange. Um, I used them both because they don't have the same coverage. So some of them have better coverage in certain areas and some of them, you know, one of them has better coverage in other areas. You combine them both and you pretty much have a good image of the area. The drawback, of course, is Flight Radar 24 costs money. So um, if you don't want to refresh the page every 15 minutes, go with ADSB Exchange. Um, and so early on in the war, uh, or before the war started, really, we were able to see a couple of trends with flight tracking. First of all, the sheer number of military intelligence, military intelligence flights that were over and around Ukraine that were not Ukrainian aircraft was astounding. Um, at one point, there were three RC-135, their four-engine jet uh, surveillance aircraft built into like a Boeing 707 type engine or C-135 uh, body. Um, and they're used for strategic level reconnaissance, uh, signals intelligence and electronic intelligence and things like that. They're expensive and rare. The U.S. military only has a couple dozen of them. Um, the Royal Air Force only has like six of them or four of them or something like that. And so when I saw two Royal Air Force RC-135s accompanying one American Air Force one, uh, was pretty astounding. I'd never seen two Royal Air Force RC-135s operating in conjunction anywhere in the globe in my many years of aircraft tracking. And so that stood out to me. Uh, there were uh, U-2 spy planes flying around, uh, RQ-4 Global Hawk drones. And then you'd also see KC-135 and KC-10 uh, refueling tankers circling near the Polish border and near the Romanian border with the understanding being that there were fighter aircraft probably near them doing combat air patrols of the borders of NATO, which is not typical um, at all. NATO doesn't typically do combat air patrols. They do alert aircraft. So if there's a plane that comes into NATO territory, they scramble a fighter and it goes and looks at the plane. They don't normally have aircraft already up in the air um, other than like during the Cold War. Um, so that was astounding. Um, when we were about a week out from the war, the airspace over Ukraine, which has already been pretty vacant since the shootdown of MH17, almost completely cleared out with the exception of those military intelligence flights and then like Ukrainian-owned aircraft. Uh, nobody was risking flying over Ukraine anymore. And when the airline industry pieces out of an area, you know that things are pretty sketch because they are known to take some risks, um, as MH17 showed. Um, but so that was a, another sign to me that, that something was coming was when the airline industry itself said like, Hey, we're not flying over Ukraine at all anymore. Um, stood out to me. Uh, AIS tracking has been hit or miss. AIS is like, uh, ADSB plane tracking, but for ships, AIS has been hit or miss. Um, but we've been able to see, uh, basically large numbers of cargo ships stacking up outside the minefields in the Black Sea, um, unable to enter to Ukraine. Um, so that's uh, indicative of the blockade and of the minefields and things of that nature. Um, 
early in the war, it was a lot more prevalent. Um, but web SDR technology, which is um, basically, it's like a ham radio on the internet. You can't speak into it, but you can tune it to whatever frequency the radio is capable of receiving, and you can listen in. Um, early in the war, uh, web SDR technology was able to pick up all sorts of fun signals. There were, um, of course, you can still hear Russian bombers um, on their strategic bomber network. And so they talk in code like any good pilot does. And so we don't really know what they're saying, but we know when they're communicating with ground control and thus we know when they're in the air. And so typically when we hear the Russian bomber network go active, about an hour later, the air raid sirens will sound across Ukraine um, as aircraft launched cruise missiles come streaking in. And so um, that was one way that uh, we monitor, we've been able to monitor airstrikes. Um, there's also uh, land units were broadcasting over unencrypted radio frequencies early in the war, and they've stopped doing this for the most part, I believe now. But early in the war, anybody with web SDR tech could tune in and listen to Ukrainian ground forces broadcasting, not encoded and not encrypted, kind of just in the clear what was happening to them north of Kiev and in other places. Um, and the New York Times has done some pretty good work on this. Um, but I mean, you can hear these guys essentially weeping and, and crying into their microphones because they're not being given reinforcements and they're being slaughtered by the Ukrainians. Um, and and that's the first time I've ever heard something like that in real time from any conflict in the world. I mean, there's radio intercepts that have come out of Syria and Iraq, of course, but those are usually after the fact and leaked by the military. Real-time civilian intercepts of military broadcasts, pretty rare thing. Um, and of course, then when the Moskva was, was struck with missiles and was sinking, we could tune in and, and hear the distress signal coming out from the ship. Um, and then you could also hear uh, Ukrainians with, with uh, ham radios that could broadcast, broadcasting music and radio noise and things like that over the distress signal so nobody could actually understand the distress signal. So they were actively jamming effectively the, uh, the Moskva's distress signal, um, which uh, kind of not cool, but I get it. Um, the... Uh, early in the war, uh, we noticed peculiar things happening around the borders of Ukraine. Um, there was an incident where early in the war, there was like a Black Hawk helicopter that landed uh, near the border with Poland. And then like some U.S. VIPs were evacuated across the border. Um, and we were able to monitor that kind of stuff with border checkpoint cameras. Uh, most countries in Europe have them. Uh, and so that's a good example of. Um, you just got to kind of think outside the box with this stuff. Um, the tools I've outlined here are just the ones that I'm good at and the ones that I like. I'm sure everybody here listening has a couple ideas in their head of things that might um, yield results when searching for information in Ukraine. Um, so like these border cameras, you know, you just search uh, border cameras, Poland or border cameras, Romania, and you'll find a government website that'll say like, here's all of our border crossings. Here is a camera, that, either a live streaming camera or a camera that's updated every five or 15 seconds or something like that. And so you can see when something like a helicopter lands at the border checkpoint, um, obviously. But you can also see if there's like a line of cars, if there's like a line of people trying to evacuate. 
right? And so that's something that we saw early in the war were just tons of people trying to leave the leave the country at all these border crossings. Um, and so those showed up visually, but they also showed up as traffic jams on like Google's traffic map, uh, which funny enough, in the opening hours of the war, the Russian army caused traffic jams uh, on all the roads in Russia leading to Ukraine. And so we saw these traffic jams appearing like an hour before the war kicked off uh, across the border in Russia near Belgorod. Um, and then they crossed the border. The traffic jam crossed the border. And we knew that some kind of a large interruption in traffic had crossed the border, probably a military convoy. Um, and so we corroborated that uh, traffic data with then live streams from border crossing checkpoints in Ukraine. And the infamous picture of the border guard running away with his gun out, uh, that image was taken from one of the border cameras right before it went down. There were, of course, the videos of the tanks coming in across the northern border um, that were leaked to CNN and things like that. Um, but with the combination of the OSINT tools I've outlined here, we were really able to see um, in real time the war develop. Um, and as this war continues, there's going to be new tools that come out and new techniques that are that are created or that are discovered that allow us to follow the war in ways that we aren't capable of doing right now. And so um, I am, of course, fascinated. I know this is a little bit cutting it a little bit short, um, but I am fascinated to hear any questions people may have um, because I really want to hear from the community here. I want to know what ideas people have. I want to know what techniques maybe you can bring to the table that we haven't thought of. Um, two-way street. So if there are any questions, I'd be happy to yield them at this time. Thank you so much, Aram. And uh, I want to remind everybody that if you do have a question, you, you are free to DM it to me. So I'll do the uh, the moderator um, task, I guess, of going through them and, and lining them up for Aram to, to answer. Uh, my, and also, if you want to <clears throat> raise your hand, there's an option in Discord. I think it's on the top right. You can raise your hand and uh, I can unmute you. Uh, but well, I give you time to type out a question or to uh, think of one so you can ask it uh, by, by raising your hand. I wanted to maybe point maybe point something out here, Aram, and, and, and ask you a question. Um, so, you, you know, uh, first of all, thank you for the talk. It was, uh, uh, you know, I do this for a living and, and I, I, I was, you know, blown away at all the examples that you, that you, that you reminded me of, of novel uses of, of, of technology to track conflict and so much of open source research is that it's like taking something that everybody knows that exists and it's used for x purpose but i'm going to use it for y purpose now and that and that purpose is to track the uh the war um and i think that the best example or not the best one the, the latest one that you mentioned that that kind of reminded me again of the power of open source technology is the one of the traffic jam so i remember actually Jeffrey Lewis, your your professor at the at the Middlebury Institute, tweeting about this, saying like, "Hey, like here's a screenshot from Google Maps that every single person here in this audience knows what Google Maps is, and you've all seen the interface when there's a traffic jam." And he's like, "Why are there all these traffic jams leading into Ukraine on February 25th?" And obviously, it was because, as you say, Aram, we were seeing ordinary Russian people caught up in in traffic jams that were being caused by this invasion force. So, I wonder if you can. Uh, you know, that's a prime example of a technology that's been around forever and everybody uses it every single day being repurposed in this novel way 
to tell us something about conflict. Can you think of another example like that, Aram? I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, or can you tell us like your favorite example of like the of like the use of a technology that that makes you go, oh man, like I've used that website a million times, and I, this is the first time I'm seeing it for tracking conflict, and it's really cool. Um, I mean, there's a number of of examples I can think of. Um, there's yesterday at work, I was actually just discussing with somebody that you can track a lot of current events and breaking news events. Um, just by having like a, a toolbar folder on your browser that hits up things, um, official media outlets. So um, if you want US military uh, media, dvidsnet, uh, dvidshub.net, I believe is the um, Defense Department's video and photo outlet. Um, and then there's also like Getty Images and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Reuters and things like that. And if you look at these editorial images every day you can see like they'll upload pictures of these battlefields and they'll tag the image with what you're looking at what battlefield it's on what unit they're with things like that uh these are tools that are not meant for following conflict this is meant for selling images right um but you can totally track a conflict with it um youtube live streams are meant for video game streams or live events or whatever it may be. They're not really meant to call the attention of the UN Security Council to an issue, but that's exactly what happened in early March uh, when the Russians attacked Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, for the first time in that plant's YouTube channel's history, they went live from a security camera. They had never gone live from a security camera, but somebody at the power plant made the conscious decision to go live on YouTube knowing that People are going to see a column of tanks lined up outside a nuclear power plant and kind of freak out. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, I was among the people who tweeted about it. It kind of went viral. And then I saw the live stream pop up on CNN and then watched my own version of the live stream uh, pixelate and die. So uh, thanks, CNN. But, um, but it was fascinating while, while it lasted. We got about two hours of footage out of it of Russian tanks shooting at and an armor personnel carrier shooting at an arm at a nuclear power plant in the middle of the night, shooting at a fire department, things like that. Uh, and then about 24 hours later, the UN Security Council met in an emergency session and discussed that video and discussed that attack. And so somebody at the power plant used YouTube to call the attention of the international community to their little power, their big power plant, rather, but in a way that it nobody really would have seen it if they hadn't done that. They would have heard the news about it. But now we have the image of the column of tanks in grainy black and white footage outside a power plant. And it means so much more, you know? Yeah. And I remember that night because I, because you DM'd me and you said, Hey, <laughs> you like, you wouldn't believe this. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's such a great example around. Thanks for sharing it. It's such a weird, um, I don't know, whenever something like that happens, I think what a weird sort of world reality we live in like that, that, yeah, anyways. Um, I guess, I guess, uh, the fact that that thing, sort of thing can happen means that we, uh, we have, uh, a work, I guess. Right. And that if you're into open source research, there's, uh, basically an infinite amount of opportunities, um, for you to creatively get at information. Yeah. And I mean, another example I can think of is, um, a couple of years ago, you and I actually worked on this one together. Um, when the Iranians shot down mm. that Ukrainian aircraft, mm -hmm. um, I remember you and I were the only two who were awake, really, yeah. in like the open source world, because most of the people were in Europe or on the East Coast, and so they were asleep. You and I were awake, 
And so I remember we looked at like Flight Radar 24. We used that in conjunction with uh, videos that people had posted of explosions up in the air. Uh, but then I believe you got a passenger manifest that was leaked and sent it to me and asked me if I could help verify it. And so I was using Facebook for that, right? I was mm -hmm. looking up these passenger names uh, and looking for people in Canada and I was finding real people tied to these names, right? And it was it was awful. I mean, it was yeah. it was heartbreaking to see family members posting on their Facebook pages talking about, you know, I'll see you in a few hours, blah, blah, blah. And to know that they weren't going to make that connection uh, was heartbreaking. Um, but it provided us with an instantaneous realization that, holy shit, a whole bunch of Canadians just got blown out of the sky over Iran, this is going to be a huge international incident in the morning. And so I, we knew that we had some work to do and that we weren't going to be sleeping for the next couple of nights. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but that's an example, too, of, of using just social media, right, mm -hmm. to confirm a tragedy has taken place far before the media grabbed it, far before any news and the agencies were really discussing it or yeah. confirming it. We knew what was going on. Yeah. And I suppose on a long enough time scale, any, any, technology, you know, I can imagine like the day that I signed up for Facebook back in, I don't know, when I was an undergrad, I think it was in second year of university, I never would have imagined that I'd be using that platform for my work, you know, 15, 20 years later, you know, tracking conflict um, uh, across the world. So yeah, definitely. We have, we've gotten a lot of questions here uh, from, from the audience. They've all been DM'd, which is great. I'm going to try to line them up for you here, Aram. We've got one from Slow T. Hello, Slow T. Thanks for uh, being here. Uh, Sloty asks, how do you dig through all of the nonsense, uh, nonsense in quotation marks, when you're doing open source intelligence work? Some days when you're digging through Telegram, it can just take hours because there's so much data out there. So how do you go through all of the data uh, uh, as, you're, as, you're, as you're doing your work? And how do you see the important data from just the background noise that you get on social media? So uh, that's actually a really good question uh, because it's, it's an issue that I see a lot of people run into is just like the amount of information that you can get. And I've run into this. If I, uh, I don't use telegram really, unless I'm like kind of forced to uh, because it's just, it's like a fire hose of information. It just won't stop. And then your phone fills up and I don't know how to clear it. I'm bad with smartphones. And so then, then I just don't have a phone anymore. Um, and so that's not good. Um, and so what I've found is you have to, kind of build a network of other researchers that you trust, that you maybe know indirectly or that you have spoken with, but but that you trust and that you can verify, give good, accurate information. And you follow them on Twitter um, and see what, what information they're posting. And you choose selectively which fire hoses you're going to use, right? So if you want to follow the conflict in Syria, okay, when it was still heated or when it was still actively fighting every day, right? Or if you want to follow the conflict in Ukraine now, okay, which aspect of the war do you want to follow? Which battlefield are you interested in? And pick one of those specifically. Otherwise, you're not only going to get flooded with information that you're not going to be able to do anything with. You're just, it's going to be such a broad look at the conflict that you're not going to really get much more out of it than you would get just scrolling Twitter, right? So have certain people that you trust and that you can verify who follow uh, information and share it uh, themselves, that follow the primary sources of information and share it themselves. Um, but also, I guess, keep 
keep like a distance from some of it. Um, one, to limit the amount of data that you're taking in, and two, some of it's really traumatic. So um, rely on other researchers to help you. Don't think that you have to do all of this research on your own. And that's that's a problem I ran into early on. I started, you know, I cut my teeth in the OSINT world, uh, really with Syria. And early on, I had to see every ISIS video. I had to see every release. because I got to know what they're doing on the battlefield. I got to know. And, uh, you know, you don't. You really don't need to see every video that comes out. You don't need to see every press release. Uh, if you follow the right people and if you know the right uh, folks in the OSINT world, even informally, uh, you'll get a pretty good picture of what's going on. It's kind of like uh, on a micro level. Don't follow Donald Trump's social media accounts. You're going to see all the big things he tweets anyway because <laughs> everybody's going to tweet it, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's really so, good advice. And, and uh, you know, Michael Coburn, who, who, who you might know, who does uh, a lot of work uh, researching the far right uh, at Bellingcat, he had exactly that advice around. He said... Um, I think the question would have been the same, or it would have been something like, how do you stay sane doing this kind of research? And he said, well, you don't have to do all of it. You're not the only person in the world who's interested in this. Uh, look to other researchers, you know, you can rely on other people, you know, build a little bit of a network, um, even if it's just an informal one and, 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 and rely on the work of others. Cause yeah, you can't, you can't, and you really, you don't want to look at every single video that's coming out of Ukraine um or anywhere else in in the world from a conflict zone. so that's really good advice there around thank you so much um we got another question here this is from k hello k uh k asks a couple of questions i'm going to go to your second question there k um k is asking aram how do you think that amateurs can have the biggest impact for good as in what tasks can be carried out by an amateur that would be useful for a more experienced researcher or professional so I guess a broader question would be if you're listening to this and you're just starting out and you want to help out somehow, but you don't really know how, how would you recommend that, that uh, somebody who's just beginning uh, sink their teeth into this kind of work around? Well, um, I think the first thing to do um, would be to, as I've said earlier, start networking a bit um, and understand that it's going to take you a bit of time to work up to a level where you feel like where you feel fulfilled by what you're doing. That's not to say that what you're doing won't be fulfilling before then. You just may not feel it because it may not feel like you're doing something original or something new or something impactful because you're doing grunt work or you're, you're parsing data, whatever. Um, and so start networking with other people who are interested in what you're, what you're doing. And I mean that on the most micro level you can find it. I mean, I'm not saying find other people interested in following the war in Ukraine. I'm saying Find other people who are interested in conflict in the Black Sea specifically or in the air war in Ukraine or something like that and network with them. Find out what sources they're using. Chat with them. It's really about knowing your fellow researchers uh, and knowing what research has been done so you don't double efforts that have been, you know, that, that are unnecessary. But also understand that uh, sometimes the grunt work is going to suck, uh, but you have to do it. The, inf the example I can think of is early on in my OSINT career, um, there weren't a whole lot of open source, and there still aren't, um, databases of like military equipment around the world, um, like who has how many tanks and what kind of tanks and whatnot. Um, and so I was able to uh, get my hands on a copy of a report that talked about that 
But in order to put the data into a format that I could actually use myself, I had to parse it manually. And so I'd put on Netflix and parse the data and blah, 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 right? You look at T72 written on a piece of paper 200 times and see how many, how many tanks they have of each model and whatever. Um, I can tell you how many, about about the military equipment of every country in the world, though, right? If you give me a country, I can tell you, oh, yeah, they have got, they've got a pretty strong tank fleet, whatever. Not that that reflects necessarily a, a battlefield prowess, but it gives you an approximate view. That's an example, I guess, of uh, just grunt work that I started out doing that has helped my career personally. But if you want to help the wider community, you want to see an impact in, in, in what you're doing, you really do have to network with other people and see what projects people are working on, and then try to find a project that you think you can join in with. Uh, because that's the, the thing is that a lot of these OSINT techniques are pretty big projects in the end. And unless you've done a few of them or been a part of a few of them, you're, you might start it and never finish it, and that'll just make you feel bad. So find an, a project somebody else is working on and shoot them a DM. Um, and if anybody listening ever needs help with that kind of thing or needs direction, my inbox on Discord here is always open, um, and so I'm happy to help people look in the right direction for projects and whatnot. Um, so yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Aram. And I, I guess I should say, you know, historically, it certainly was the case for me. Twitter was the place where you would connect with people. Twitter, uh, I think, has always been the uh, the the open source research hangout. Uh, maybe now, hopefully, uh, some of that is is changing a little bit, and we have another platform to uh, to connect with researchers. Hopefully maybe the server can serve that function. So, um, you know, I'm really happy to see so many familiar faces here in the audience, people who I know are sharing news and knowledge and, and doing geolocations in, in, the, in the Discord server here. So, uh, you know, I, I wanna say that as a way of saying, thank you for all that you're doing. And I hope that some of you who are new to the server can come to see this as a place where you can do precisely what Aram is saying. That is build a network, do some work together, uh, meet people who have similar interests and and come up with ideas um, to produce uh, important uh, bits of data, important projects uh, that can help us understand uh, more about you know any subject that that interests you. Um, we have a question here from Big Worry, our friend Big Worry. I, I don't know if I should dox you, Big Worry. I don't know if you're comfortable with uh, being doxed. I'm just going to say Big Worry has a question. I think I've do I've do may have doxed you already, uh, but I won't I won't I won't now. Big Worry says, I'm interested in hearing if RM has used train or cargo tracking platforms to track Russian military deployments. And if so, what have your experiences with this? Uh, uh, how, how have your experiences with this uh, sort of tracking gone, Aram? I personally have not um, because I believe you needed a subscription on the website. There was a Russian website that would allow you to track rail movements. Um, and I didn't have a subscription. And I think the website was in Russian. And my rule of thumb with the internet is if I don't speak the language, I'm not going to put my credit card information into it. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe maybe Google Translate isn't picking up on the fine print there that says, like, by the way, Aram, we're going to take your money. And it's like, no, that's in the fine print. Now they get it. Um, but... Uh, so I didn't do it personally, but this is an example of how networking really helps. I didn't know what I was doing with train tracking, but like conflict intelligence team knew, um, there were folks at Bellingcat who knew what to do. And so I was pretty confident that these folks were keeping a close eye on these train movements. And if they weren't, if I saw a video of a train that nobody had talked about, 
I could tweet it out and tag them. And more likely than not, at least one of them is going to see it and be interested in helping you out. Because let's be real, we're all nerds and we're all really interested in what we're talking about and what we're, what we're researching. And we really want to share that with other people. And so that's, I guess, the cool thing about the OSINT world is that networking is pretty easy. Most folks are pretty open to being messaged. Um, those that aren't might just be too online. Um, and so you got to just keep that in mind with them. It's probably nothing personal. Thanks for that. Uh, that's a good rule of thumb. If you don't know <laughs> what the website says, don't, don't give them your credit card. Uh, I, I just realized everybody. So there's a new feature with Discord and the stage talk and the ability to speak. Uh, I had it turned off. So if any of you have been wondering why your hand is not going up, it's because I, I didn't allow you to do it. I'm sorry. I just noticed that. Wow. that, that yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. So I've, I've turned it on now. So, so you should be able to raise your hand now if you want to, to ask a question. So if you were tried before and it didn't work, now you should be able to do it. I want to go back to a, another text question here. Uh, this is from Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Sarah, who says, I am in three meetings right now. Sarah, I think is a... Um, a pattern. She's been here a couple times and always in a meeting. So hi, Sarah. Uh, good to see you. Thank you for asking your question. Uh, Sarah asks, I was really curious about the snow on the tents melting and deducing that they were being used. I would have made the assumption that maybe the sunlight was hitting them and that's why the snow was melting. So the question is, how do you get to a point where you're comfortable saying that's a person in a tent from such a distance? Um, well, normally I, I wouldn't have been as confident uh, in the ability to say that. But in this case, it was uh, a row. I think there were like four rows of tents and it was probably 10 tents wide. Um, and it was just like the ones dead center. Like there were six of them in the center in, in line with each other that all didn't have snow on the roof. And then another row next to them and then another row next to them. And so it looked too precise to be natural. Uh, you know, I would expect every other roof to be melted if it were like just from sunlight. Uh, but it was like very much a, a, a selection of tents, you know, with military style precision. Like, no, you guys don't all pick a different tent in the, in the camp. You're all next to each other, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I think I remember seeing some of those pictures. I don't know if it was you who tweeted them out, but I, I remember looking at them and thinking the same, like, oh my gosh, this looks like there's people in this, in these tents here. Um, Okay, we have a question from Milu. Hi, Milu. Uh, Milu asks, is the talk being recorded? The combination of techniques is incredibly valuable, but it's hard to keep track of everything. Yes, it's being recorded. So I'm going to share a link to the uh, to the a SoundCloud uh, file that will be this talk. And I'll, I'll do that later, uh, uh, either this week or next week, Milu. And the real question for Milu is, has Aram ever considered training machine learning models to spot patterns? Especially uh, when we think about the traffic jam or the aircraft monitoring talk that you gave? Um, is there anything like machine learning, any sort of automation that you've seen or that could take place with some of this monitoring that you're doing around? Um, I mean, there's a number of things that could be done. I, I think my issue here is that I have no background or competency with machine learning whatsoever. And so I don't even know what's possible with it. Um, and so I would need to sit down with somebody and chat about that. And we just kind of need to BS about what's possible and what's not. But what I've seen a, a couple people doing, I've got a friend right now who's working on a script that uses um, Sentinel-2 imagery, uh, comes out every three or four days of everywhere in the world, to track ships, um, to basically look at the ocean and see where there's an anomaly using Sentinel-2 and Sentinel-1 radar and true color imagery. 
compare them and say like, oh yeah, there's something disturbing the water here. It's probably a ship, probably this length. Um, that's a pretty cool use of it. Uh, there's like with Sentinel 2 imagery, I guess one, if anybody listening could do this. Um, <laughs> Sentinel 2 imagery will sometimes, it's, it's several bands of image that are taken for every snapshot. And so the satellite doesn't take all of those bands of image at once. It takes them like a millisecond after each other. Um, so if there's an airliner or a fighter jet flying somewhere, it will have uh, a silhouette of that aircraft, very small on the map, um, in red, blue, and green, basically one behind the other. Uh, and so you can see effectively what kind of aircraft it is, be it military, like a fighter or a transport or something like that. Um, it just takes forever to search for them by hand. So something like that, if it was automated, would be pretty useful. Um, or anything that could uh, look for certain patterns with um, with unidentified aircraft. So if, of course, if it's a military aircraft, that'll ping on the flight tracking server as like, hey, look at this, it's military. But sometimes aircraft take off on ADSB exchange that are just an unmarked or unidentified aircraft. Um, if somebody could make something that would spot those when they're circling or something like that, that could be useful. Um, but I think, again, my answer here is just to network with people and find out what other people are looking for. People who may not know anything about machine learning like myself who will be stoked to partner up with somebody who knows more machine learning and can teach me, uh, I guess, or teach us uh, what, what we're missing. Yeah, I, we get that. I get that question a lot um, about automation, and my answer is always the same as yours. It's like, I don't know the first thing about. Like, I I know how to turn on a computer and use it, but I don't know anything else. And I feel like a really, really old. Uh, like, I just feel like I'm totally out of my element when people ask me about that because I, you know, I'm sure there's tons possible, and you've outlined a couple of really cool project ideas there, Ram. Uh, but there's people way smarter than me who are listening to this and going, "Oh yeah, I could totally automate that like over a weekend with some Python." In fact, you mentioned one tool there. Around that, I think our uh, tech team is is has been thinking about. Um, I don't want to give it away. I don't know if it's like a secret project at this moment, but uh, one of the things that you mentioned is something that the the tech team at Bellinka has been thinking about and is potentially going to get working on. So that's really cool. Thanks for that question. Uh, I have one now here from Paprika, and Paprika asks, "Are you familiar with any ways to track hospital or medical supplies in real time?" I think Reuters reported a couple of weeks prior to the outbreak of the war that Russia was sending blood supplies to the border. Has your team used tracking medical supplies as another avenue of research? I have not. Um, I don't know how much of that data is public, and I would think that most of it would probably not be. Um, but I know that the blood reports, I believe, were um, Reuters, like uh, human, in, human intelligence contacts, like people on the ground reporting it to them. Um, but we were able to spot field hospitals going up near the border. Uh, that much we were able to see because Russian field hospitals follow um, a distinct layout. And so they were pretty easy to spot from the air. And you can identify these layouts in a number of ways. Uh, if you were looking for what a Russian field hospital layout looks like, you could either look up the Russian or Soviet military manual and see what the example layout looks like because it's the military. They're never going to ever tell troops, hey, build a field hospital in the most efficient way possible because they're not going to build it in the most efficient way possible. Uh, so they have to be very specific with the instructions. Build it exactly like this picture. 
Um, and so they'll have a picture of what it should look like. Or you find a Russian field hospital in Syria and take a satellite image of that and compare it to what you're looking at in Ukraine. Um, that's another way of doing it. Uh, yeah, it, so that, that's about the only way to track hospitals um, that I know of, just because I think a lot of that information is kept kind of under wraps um, because it can be like a national security issue. Yeah, somehow. I I remember, I also remember, I, I mean, if it was Reuters, uh, it was Reuters, but I, I, I remember that report as well. And that was one of the ones that I thought, okay, if that's, uh, you know, true, then yeah, there's definitely a war going because why would you move all that blood? Um, you know, um, of all the things to move, like a, a bunch of blood, I think it's probably pretty difficult to move around. And um, it just made sense that they were gearing up for lots of people needing blood. Um, we have a question here from, I think I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Wojtek the Bear. Hi, Wojtek. And Wojtek asks, could Aram answer this question, colon? And he, the question is this, I got a new gig and I'm not able to dedicate as many hours into Ukraine OSINT. So what, are, what is something that people like myself with some skills or not a lot of time could do or could dedicate time to? Uh, I mean, it depends on how much time you've got really and how much experience you've got with a lot of these things. Um, because... The, the learning curve is, is quite steep on some of these techniques. And so you're going to need to put in a lot more hours in the beginning to learn a lot about um, these different tools. So for instance, if, if we were talking about aircraft tracking in Ukraine, it's pretty quick and easy to figure out how to use Flight Radar 24 and to look at airplanes in the sky. Um, but you would need to know what kind of aircraft models to be looking for that can stand out, what tail numbers to look for, what flight patterns to look for. And that takes some time and some, some experience to, to really pick up on, um, to know which things are exciting and new and which things are, are typical, right? Um, and so I would say if you just started a new gig and you don't have a whole lot of time to dedicate to this, um, find people who it's their full-time job that you trust, follow them on Twitter, see their updates, um, and then see what sources they pull from. And um, sometimes you'll find things that'll make your life a little easier. So, if, for instance, I used to see a lot of reporting on Twitter quoting these OSCE reports. And so eventually I found out that if I just checked the OSCE reports themselves every day, I'd pretty much get a rundown of what had happened in Ukraine, right? Uh, so find something or someone who summarizes events for you pretty well so you can bring yourself up to speed and spend the majority of your off time learning a new technique as opposed to. I have four hours off every day and I spend the first two trying to catch up on what the hell happened. And then I only have two hours to possibly learn how to do something right. Uh, LiveUAMap.com is a, is a good one for this. They, um, they monitor events in real time. Um, but another resource I don't see a lot of people use is um, Wikipedia has a, a really ugly page, but if you look up Wikipedia current events, it'll be the first result on Google. And it's just the last month, everything that's happened every day around the world that their editors have seen. And so you use something like that to update yourself on whatever issue it is that you're interested in following, and then use your spare time to pick up a new technique. Um, and you're going to have to play around with different te techniques and tools until you find one that fits, I guess is the best answer. Um, I wish there were a better way to say it, but it, it, you know, it's, sometimes it's going to take a while, it's going to take some time. 
And uh, if your time is limited, it might make it a little more difficult to learn these things. That's not to say that you're not an important part of the community. Um, we have places for everyone. Um, but just understand that it might be a little more difficult to learn as many tools as some of your peers who have more spare time or, or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that, Aram. And, and maybe as a way to conclude, because um, we're just about out of time, you got about uh, just four or five minutes left. Um, I wanted to maybe think about, this is a question that I've, I uh, ask people, uh, not just on, on Discord stage talks. In fact, this is the first time I'm gonna ask it, but it, I'm gonna ask it to you because I think it's a good question to ask people who've been doing something uh, for a long time and who are good at it. And I was, I was shocked to, uh, to find out um, that you've been doing this for so long, 2013, when you said 2013, it made me realize, oh my God, that's, a, that's almost a decade, that's a decade basically, right? Like, can you believe you've been doing this for, for almost a decade? And when I think about my entry into the, the world of open source research, pretty much a decade as well, because I, I, I really began to make an earnest effort to, to uh, do open source research in the style that Bellingcat was doing it, because I saw Bellingcat coming up and I thought, man, that's such a cool place. That's such a cool group of people. I'll never work there, but maybe I can approximate some of the work that they're doing in my own way. And that was in early 2014 for me. So the question that I wanted to ask you is, what, what is some advice or what is something that you know now that you wish you had known 10 years ago when you were beginning your journey as an open source researcher, keeping in mind that there are so many people listening to this who are where you were a decade ago, who are just now beginning to take their first steps in to the vast ocean that is open source research. What is some advice uh, or what is something that you wish you'd known back then when you were starting uh, that you know now? Um, well, a couple things. Uh, first of all, as we talked about earlier, you don't need to see every video that comes out. You don't need to see every atrocity. You don't need to see every massacre. Uh, so take care of your head, take care of your brain, take care of your heart. Uh, this stuff will absolutely get to you. It won't feel like it at the time. You'll you'll see your peers looking away in disgust, and you'll think to yourself, "Oh, I can handle this. This is just this is what I do every day." Um, and then you'll find yourself being really snappy with people and irritable and um, freaking out over small things. And before you know it, you'll realize that you've traumatized yourself with videos on the internet. And so that's one thing I wish I had realized earlier on is that like, no, this stuff will absolutely screw with your head. So be careful and um, keep the videos minimized and small if you have to watch them. Mute the audio, for the love of God, mute the audio. Unless you absolutely need to hear what they're saying, do not listen to those, those videos. Um, and limit how many of them you look at in general. Um, but in addition to that, um, I wish I had believed in myself more 10 years ago. And I think that's the ultimate lesson of this for everybody who's listening here today, is I was, I'm just a simple country boy. You know, I went to a one of the worst high schools in Oregon and uh, failed out of my first undergraduate school and uh, went to the Evergreen State College when Evergreen was known for impotent protests and fascists trying to storm the campus. Um, and so I didn't really think that I could do anything big, right? I thought that, uh, and I'm not knocking this, this profession because this is my end goal, but I thought I would just end up as like a, a community college professor, like history professor, uh, you know, in, in a small town somewhere and then go about that. And I, again, I would like to do that someday. I don't think I'm ready for that yet. Um, but I didn't think I could ever make an impact or be involved in OSINT like I am now. Um, 
just because like oh, I don't know the skills like Elliot Higgins knows them. Like I don't know how to track planes that well. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Like I'll never know it. I don't know what's going on in Ukraine. I, I know nothing about Ukraine, right? Well, before you know it, it's been ten years and you find yourself just it's second nature knowing the answer to these problems. And uh I'm running out of time here. But um yeah, I guess just believe in yourself, believe in what you're capable of doing. If you're here and if you're in this server, you've already taken the first several big steps. Reach out to me anytime. I'm happy to help people through any of these issues that they may have or help them look in the right direction for a project. I'd like to take this time to announce that uh, my my personal project website, uh, thefoldagap.com, uh, is where I started writing and started doing my analysis work many years ago. Um, anybody listening today, who is interested in writing or taking part in open source research or anything like that, please reach out to me. And um, if you've got a writing sample that you can send my way, and uh, it looks like something that myself and the others at the Foldergap uh, would like to host, we'd be happy to host people's work um, as like a free place to host open source intelligence work from people who are starting in the field and would like to have uh, an online portfolio they can point at. Um, be happy to do that for anybody. So. DM me, message, uh, inbox is always open, and uh, yeah. Aram, that was the perfect way to end this talk because I've been smiling the whole time you were talking. From simple country boy, I think were your words, to open source information gathering manager, that's such a cool title, at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, that message at the end is just making me warm up, believe in yourself, start small, uh, you know, put in the work over time, and eventually you'll make it, and Aram is living proof of that. So Aram, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us. Thank you for mentioning the Folda Gap uh, at the end there. And uh, thank you all for listening. This is going to be on SoundCloud later. Aram, again, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll see you at the next uh, stage talk in a couple of weeks, probably. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the stage talk. If you'd like to catch a stage talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.